0: Thank you guys, that was, that was beautiful, that was well done, powerful. The psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning is Psalm 32. And it's interesting as I stand up here to preach this morning that I am on the same stage, standing about 15 feet away from where I asked my wife if she would date me. So our senior year, I'd had my eye on her for a while. I'd been praying about her. I was praying that God would do a work in her so that she would notice me. And going into our senior year, she was was into drama, and she was in the play the year before, and I was pretty confident she'd be in the play, the fall play, our senior year and so I decided that I would try out for the fall play and uh, in the providence of God and there's more to the story but we ended up actually being having a part in the play playing opposite each other where we were actually in the play getting married and uh, so we had to rehearse our lines together on on stage they made us hold hands during the scenes it was amazing <laughs> and um, so during the during the final production on this stage there was a scene where in the play i was on my knees asking asking this character if she would marry me and it was the action was happening over here and the people were talking over here we were just pantomiming this out and, and i remember that I was on my knees and I looked into the eyes of Rebecca, and instead of calling her Bianca, I said, Rebecca. And she looked at me like, What are you doing? (laughs) And then I realized at that moment I hadn't really thought the wording through. And so I said what I was thinking I said, Will you date me? And uh, she just, she was appalled (laughs) and uh, started giggling. And then I looked at her like, I'm serious. And uh, she said yes. And um, so that was, that was about 24 years ago. And so circle around the calendar. We had graduated in May. And we were taking a semester um, as I was in grad school. And she was actually, had already graduated, was teaching in a Christian school. And we were planning on being married at uh, December 18th. And so, so today... I'm exactly, well, a little bit less than 23 years away from our wedding day. So take, take you back to that point 23 years ago where I'm just a couple weeks away from being married, and, and I hate to tell you this, but I, I thought that we were going to have the perfect marriage. Why? Because I was 100% committed to doing everything right. Was 100% committed to doing everything right. You know what I found out? I married a sinner. And she married a sinner. And all of these thoughts that I'm going to do everything right and we are going to have a perfect marriage because of that went out the window. And you know what I learned? I learned that a perfect marriage doesn't happen because you do everything right. A perfect marriage happens by dealing with wrong things the right way over and over and over again. When we come to the book of Psalms, we we understand that the book of Psalms begins with the ideal. Mr. Herpster preached on Psalm chapter 1, and it begins in this way, "...Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night." So this is the life of blessing. To be blessed is deep and complete happiness and relationship with God. But what if we fail to live up to Psalm 1? What if we take some steps according to ungodly counsel? What if we stay for a season in the way of sinners? Or what if we stumble and fall into the trap of the scornful? And and as we've lived our Christian life we know that these things are more than mere hypotheticals. These oftentimes are the reality of the ups and downs of the Christian life. There is no doubt that David wrote Psalm 32. How do I know that? Well, the psalm title says it's the Psalm of David. But more than that, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul specifically calls out David as the author of this very psalm. Now, if you read Psalm 32, you understand that it does not give you the details of why it was written. Now, it is a testimony, and there are details, and there are, um, there are instances that David shares that he was dealing with, but he doesn't, he doesn't set it in the context of his life. However, the majority of commentators can easily place this, and as you read through the life of David and you know the life of David, it makes sense that it fits after after his great moral failures of adultery and contract murder. Sometime after that, God confronted him with Nathan the prophet and David's heart broke. And Psalm 51 is his words of repentance. He repented before God, genuine, deep, heartbroken repentance in Psalm 32. It was written just a little while after that as David looks back on his repentance and he reflects at what God is doing in his heart. David missed the ideal in his relationship with God. But you know who else has? Me? You? Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32, David uses three words for sinful failure. Transgression is rebellion against God. Sin is an offense against a moral standard that God establishes, and iniquity emphasizes the genuine guilt that rests upon us because of that. But I want you to notice as I read verses 1 and 2 that each of those terms of failure is paired with a canceling term. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is Covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. So these three terms are a perfect cancellation of the three terms for sin. Sin is carried away. It is completely removed. And as one author states, Yahweh thinks of him as without iniquity and deals with him as no longer having any connection with it. And the result is sin. Blessedness, blessed. That same word that was used in Psalm one about the ideal, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the way in the seat of sinners. That that is blessing. But now we revisit that same word, blessed, twice used in this context. This is the life of blessing of deep, complete happiness in relationship with God for all of us who fail to live up to Psalm 1. So, question for you this morning. Is it better to live the Psalm 1 life or to live the Psalm 32 life? Well, that's like asking if it's better for me to be the perfect husband or to be relentless in dealing with offenses the right way. Or perhaps it's like asking if it's better to breathe in Or breathe out. Just not going to happen any other way. So, the title of the message this morning is The Blessing of Restoration. And my simple proposition is this this morning, you can have a perfect relationship with God by dealing with sin the right way. So, how do we do this? Well, this entire psalm is a testimony. It is David's testimony, it is David's reflection, it is saturated with hope, it is saturated with grace, and it gives us the details of what this can look like in our life. So first of all this morning, we must be internally honest about our sin, We must be internally honest about our sin. And so there's a point that I want to make at the beginning here that I think is very important. Our justification should never be an excuse for not dealing with our sin. And so if you're saved here this morning, you are justified. Your debt has been canceled. It has been paid in full. Christ's words on the cross when he said it is finished, it applies to you. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. But it's not an excuse for not dealing with sin. David's description of his forgiveness that we find in this psalm indicates that he's already justified. That God has already permanently dealt with his sin in an ultimate way. In fact, that is the exact point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4 as he references this very psalm. Paul says in Romans 4 verses 5 through 8, he says, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is beautiful truth. What is it saying? Well, in essence, it's saying that post-conversion sin is just as justified as pre-conversion sin. From God's perspective, it does not count. And so, great, but we must be careful of how we deal with that. So, after David says in verse 2, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, he adds these words. He says, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This is not a blank check. This is not a, I'm saved, and so it doesn't matter. God has forgiven me, so I can keep on doing whatever it is that I want to do, in whose spirit there is no guile. Our justification status actually makes it impossible to not deal with our sin. Paul says this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and then he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? John says the same thing in 1 John 2.1. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So now David, as an already justified man is now expressing this exact same truth. He's not going to be deceitful in the inner man and and notice how he addresses this in verses 3 and 4. This is his testimony. He said, "When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me; my moisture is turned into the drought of summer." What a description of inner turmoil. So here's David. He sins. And then he tries to cover it up. And then he kind, of, he kind of just gets over it and sets it aside and pushes it under the rug. And he just kind of keeps on living his life. And, and it looks like he's being successful. He's just kind of moved on from this. And, and his testimony is, no, I hadn't. I was dying inside I kept silence but my bones waxed old this is this is the affliction that is happening physiologically in the life of David it's I was trying to suppress it I was trying to push it away but but my my heart was crying out against me he describes it through my roaring all the day long When you rebel against God and break His moral standard, your spirit cries out, Guilty! Guilty! And you cry out, Shut up! And it cries out, Guilty! Guilty! And you cannot escape as a child of God. When there's something between your soul and the Savior, and when you read these words from David, you can feel it. But I want to encourage you that this is not just pressure upon life this is not just an impersonal force making you uncomfortable the heavy hand upon david was god's hand he says your hand was heavy upon me so first of all this morning we must be internally honest about our sin. That's where it begins. Our justification is not a justification for not dealing with it. Our justification actually places us in the desperate condition to be honest without our sin. And then number two, we must confess our sin to God. Now. Now this sounds very simple, and and in some ways it is. Confession is just simply stated for us in verse 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. So this is the dam breaks, and now he is dealing with his sin before God. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So what is confession? Confession. Well, David uses three terms, and so you're going to notice in this psalm there's groups of three, and they're all very significant. He says he acknowledged, which means he announced it. He said, I did not hide it. That means he did not conceal it any further, and then to confess means to cast on or to hand over. How many of you have a dog? All right, How, have, you ever, have you ever looked at your dog and your dog is chewing on something, and you're like, what did, what did he get a hold of? And so, this is what we do. We say, you know, we call out our dog's name. So, I, our, we've got a golden retriever named Callie. Um, Callie likes to chew on rocks. I have no idea why. So, she finds rocks about the size of an apricot, and I'll just, I'll look over in the summertime, and she'll be sitting there with her paws, and she's just chewing away, and I'm, I'm like, Callie, come here. I mean, you know you know dogs. Um, and then I said, Callie, what are you chewing on? And she looks up at me. I mean, I know she's not that intelligent, but I'm pretty sure she's thinking, Master, I'd rather not show you this. And I said, Callie, what are you chewing on? I hold my hand out and... Now I've got a saliva-covered rock in my hand. That is the picture of confession, to cast on or to hand over. It is not just revealing, but it is handing something over for the master's control. Now, I already know what she's chewing. I've already taken it away a couple times. I know she's back at it. What do you have? Drop it. That is the idea of confession. It is honesty. It is acknowledgement. It is coming to God and it is laying it down before Him. But also, confession is urgent. We see that in verse 6. David says, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Wait a second. God is everywhere, we can always find Him. Hmm? Be careful. Because there is a justification in what I just said. We can always find Him. Lord, I'll deal with this tomorrow. Lord, not right now. I, maybe, maybe after I, I get down the road a little bit, just let me go my own way. Let me kind of establish some things and then I will come back to You. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So, when is the time when God may be found? It is the moment when he brings conviction. That moment where it hits you that you've done wrong before him that you've broken his moral standard, that you've violated his character, that you've stepped off of the path and you know, you know with crystal clarity that you have failed God. That is the moment. Offer a prayer to him at a time when he may be found. Call unto him while he is near. Why wouldn't we do this every time? Why wouldn't this be easy? Why wouldn't we just be like, okay, I'm gonna, yes, I sinned, and Lord, here it is, and I'm so sorry, and this is what I have done, and I acknowledge it, and I lay it at your feet. Because verse 6 continues, and we see that confession is vulnerable. David says, Surely, in the flood of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. The phrase, the flood of great water. Represent something that was very commonly understood in the topography of Israel. In a mountainous region that was surrounded by large bodies of water, in the summertime when they would have torrential downpours, those mountain ravines and washes would rapidly fill up with water. It's called a flash flood. And everyone that lived out there knew that it was extremely dangerous it would destroy property, it would destroy livestock, and if you weren't careful, it would destroy human life. And so here's David, and he's describing this moment of confession, standing at the point where the time is now, God has brought conviction, but but what about the flood of great waters that threatens? Consider David. David was an ancient Near Eastern monarch. Their power was almost unquestioned. Not only did David have the authority of a king, but he had a successful kingdom that, that everybody that saw that what David was doing, they knew that this is a guy who's successful. This is a guy who is powerful. There may come a point where we could challenge him in the future, but the time is not now. And so here is David, who is almost completely unassailable, virtually untouchable. But what would it cost him to humble himself before the Lord and to take steps of confession and repentance? He had enemies. He had jealous people. They, up to that point, they had no opportunity, but would this open a vulnerability in his life would this show them weakness? David wrote two psalms a little bit later in his journey, after Psalm one, after, uh, after uh, rather after Psalm fifty-one, after Psalm thirty-two, as he's down the road a little bit, and as some of these circumstances are actually happening, there is pressure, there is difficulty that he is facing because he has opened himself up. To be vulnerable with God. Listen to Psalm 69. This is just this is more testimony, and this will give you a picture. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. I sink deep, I I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying, my throat is dried, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Literally, what I did not steal, must I now return? Because, David says, for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren." and an alien unto my mother's children. He continues this same testimony in Psalm 27. He says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. He says, Deliver me not over to the will of my enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I would actually submit to you that David at the moment of conviction, was faced with a point of decision and he knew that to say yes to God would open himself up to his enemies, it would open up the weaknesses in his kingdom and it would, provide, it would, it would cause great difficulty and distress. I can remember a time in my life where God convicted me of failure. But I thought to myself, that that would cost me too much. And so I justified and I bargained, but God did not give me quiet. And I remember on one particular night, I wasn't able to sleep. And, and I was in this internal wrestling match with God. Until, I po- until the point that I, I realized that there was no alternative path. Like, this was it. Like, I, I know how I have to deal with this. And, and so, for the first time ever in my life, I told God, no. It was like, no. Period. End of story. No. Confession is simple. It's urgent. It's vulnerable. But here's the key point. Confession is safety. So why did David have confidence that the flood would not overwhelm him? I want you to notice the threefold expression of security in God in verse 7. David says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. This is total security in God. This is this is where the whole world goes black and looking down the tone of my circumstances, all I see is God, and He is enough. And so I told you just this accounting from from my life as I got to this point where I told God, no, that lasted for maybe five seconds and then like a thunderbolt, a truth hit me and this is exactly what I thought. I am telling God right now that I can live without his presence. It was like a bucket of ice water. And as soon as I thought that, my next thought was, no, I can't. And I just cried out to God and I said, God, I cannot live without you. There is nothing else in this life that matters above you. You are my portion. You are my God. You are the only necessary thing in my life, the only one that I cannot live without. And so into that moment of vulnerability, there was a point of clarity and the point of clarity is god is enough and he is secure and he is safe and my confidence is in him and even if things crumble around me and things begin to to move and the floodwaters come in god is my rock and that is exactly what david was saying So we must be internally honest about our sin. We must confess our sin to God. And finally, we must be invested in nearness with God. Verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. A number of commentators see this as God's voice. Here comes God and he's giving some instruction in the middle of this psalm. But But I think this is actually still the voice of David speaking. All of the first-person pronouns in this psalm are David's voice. And, And if you remember, in Psalm 51, remember what David said? He said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David's commitment was, God, I don't know how, I don't know when, but as I'm coming to you in repentance, would you... Allow me to share these truths with other people. And he committed to do that. I will teach transgressors thy ways. Sinners shall be converted to thee. And I believe that's what he is doing right here in this moment. He's teaching from his testimony. The phrase, I will guide with mine eye, means that I will speak to you eye to eye. It's it's literally to look into your eye. Look, Look at me when I'm talking to you. I have something to share with you. This is personal. David encourages us to respond quickly to God's work. And as he summarizes this in verse 9, he says, Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with a bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And so the picture is this. Here's a stubborn horse or a stubborn mule, and they've got, they've got a bridle upon them. They've got reins where, whereby the, the master can control them. And if the, if the mule is stubborn, and he's like, I, I don't want to go there, I, I don't want to do what you want me to do, guess what? It's still going to end up doing what the master wants. But it's going to be very painful. And so you have the intelligent animals are responsive quickly. The dumb animals are the ones that take a lot of pain to end up doing what they would have had to do anyhow. Don't be like that. In our lives, when we delay, when we justify, when we try to sweep it under the rug, when we try to tamp down our conscience, we're being like a stubborn mule. If you're God's child, he's going to get you on the right path. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. But also, consider the alternative to God's work. David says in verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. The wicked are the lost. They've never come to God for justification. They are ultimately motivated by a belief that they are better off on their own. They've got their own path. They've got their own agenda. They've got their own purposes. And it seems to make me happy. And and they just... That's who they are, and David says it may seem best, but then he says many sorrows shall be to the wicked. This is just like what he said in Psalm 1, where he says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. It's not a way to live, it's not a person to be, the wicked person, and you're like, well, I don't have to worry about God tugging on the reins of my life and directing me. I I get to be my own person many are the sorrows of the wicked whatever you think your own way will give you is a lie it is a temporary lie many are the sorrows but verse 10 continues he that trusteth in the lord mercy shall compass him about so the question is this trusting god at salvation or is this talking about trusting god in confession The answer is yes. So a family relationship with God is the place where his mercy surrounds you. This is the Hebrew word chesed. It is God's loyal love. Family love. It's everything. You are in his arms. He compasses you about. He will never let you go. This is the place where we belong. This is our happy place. Then David concludes with a final group of three terms. And so we've already seen three terms for sin, three terms for confession, three terms for forgiveness and restoration, three terms for refuge in God, and now, in verse 11, three terms for a blessed relationship with God. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. I would love to be the perfect husband. But I I can't explain to you how much of a blessing it is to be continually growing in oneness through the reality of imperfection. And believers, this morning, we can have a perfect, blessed relationship with God by dealing with sin the right way. This is the blessing of restoration. My desire every morning, my desire every morning is Psalm 1. That's what I want, Psalm 1. But I thank God for Psalm 32. Lord, thank you for in your providence, a testimony of a broken and restored man. We thank you for David's courage at the point of confession. We thank you for, for the refuge that you were for him. And it gives us tremendous confidence as David, as it were, looks into our eyes this morning and encourages us that this can be our path, We have tremendous confidence in you we trust you we love you there's nowhere we where we'd rather be than than enclosed in the circle of your arms in permanent loyal loving family relationship with the god that gives us a life worth living and will call us home to glory someday and father i pray today that you would help us in this little but very significant aspect of sin It's simple, but it matters. And how we respond matters. Would you help us to live the life of restoration, that we would live Psalm 1, that we would live Psalm 32, that we would breathe in and that we would breathe out, and that we would enjoy this blessed relationship with you. We commit it to you in Christ's precious name. Amen.